This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, November the 21st, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, how can disability and artificial intelligence intersect in the employment sector? Alex Smythe explores this subject in an interview with Jesse Preston at the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disability Conference. Applying for the disability tax credits can be an arduous task. How could the Canada Revenue Agency improve the process? Journalist Rebecca Dingwell shares her experience and offers up some thoughts. And International Day of Persons with Disabilities is just a few weeks away. How does Canada stack up when it comes to disability rights? Rabia Hadar weighs in with her thoughts. Thank you so much for everybody who filled in for me while I was on a lovely vacation the last week or so. Let's jump right into the top story of the day. Stats Canada has released its October inflation data this morning. Prices rose 3.1% year over year. That does represent a slowing from the September data when prices were up 3.8% year over year. Stats, now you really want to dive into some of these numbers a little bit and explain the slowdown. And one of the big drivers of the slowdown is gas prices. So gas prices were down 7.8% year over year. That compared to a 7.5% increase in September. So a bit of quick layman's math there. You're talking about a nearly 16% swing in the price of gas and therefore the price of energy. The agency, Stats Canada, says the largest contributors to inflation for the month were housing and food. Grocery prices were up 5.4% year over year in October. So this data only came out a couple of minutes ago. That was some of the number crunching I could do for you this morning. But the top line item is that the pace of inflation is slowing down a little bit, largely driven by energy prices. But the cost of housing and the cost of food continue to push consumers in the other direction. So a bit of a puzzle to put together for the folks doing monetary and fiscal policy. Speaking of fiscal policy, Finance Minister Christian Freeland will present the fall economic update today. John Kennedy looks ahead. A senior government official, whom the Canadian press is not naming because they were not authorized to share details publicly, confirmed that several housing policies will be a part of the fiscal update. The federal government is set to announce $15 billion in low-cost loans for builders, as well as a $1 billion fund towards affordable housing. The loans are projected to fuel the construction of 30,000 new apartments, and the economic statement will include help for local governments that are cracking down on short-term rentals. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. One more economic story for you. You heard me talk about the Canadian gas price situation. Well, it's a similar story. South of the border, gas prices continue to stabilize in the United States. Alex Stone pumps out this report. 
Thanks to the lower cost of oil and less demand, gas prices have been coming down for weeks and now just days away from Thanksgiving. And as many Americans get ready to hit the road, it will cost less this year to fill up the tank than it cost last Thanksgiving, about 36 cents a gallon less. The Energy Department reports in the past week prices have come down six more cents to 3.29 a gallon. The cheapest gas this Thanksgiving week is along the Gulf Coast at 2.79 a gallon. Alex Stone, EBC News. And one more story, this one from the travel file. New data shows Canada's two biggest airlines ranked last for on-time performance amongst large North American carriers last month. Emily Javesky crunches the numbers. Aviation data company Sirium says nearly 28% of Air Canada flights, or more than 8,700, landed late in October, placing the company ninth out of 10 airlines on the continent. In the past, Air Canada has pointed to a shortage of air traffic controllers, bad weather, and a network running at full tilt amid high demand, which can mean longer recovery times after a disruption. The report found WestJet came last, with nearly 29% of arrivals touching down late. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. That's your look at the news to start the day. Let's get into some conversation around the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On yesterday, you were asked, should historically significant items be allowed to sell at an auction? 67% of you said yes, and 33% of you said no. Carla writes in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. If I own a historic item, no matter why, and I am not in a position to donate it, I must be allowed to sell it. However, there could be rules, such as Egypt and Greece, about not selling to foreign buyers. And Pearly Pigtails writes in, yes, depending on the buyer and their relationship to the item. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today's daily poll comes from the world of my own meandering personal experience. I was away and doing a little bit of traveling last week, and that meant a couple of Ubers, a couple of Lyfts, a couple of taxis. And there was one scenario in particular on Friday night that I found to be a little bit jarring, and that was being in an Uber that just smelled awful. And I don't mean like, oh, it stunk a little bit. I mean like I was gagging in the back seat by how poor this Uber smelt to the point that when I got out of the Uber, I had to walk around the block a couple of times to make sure my clothes didn't smell like the Uber to the party that I was going to. It was really, really rough. And it begged this question. If a rideshare or a taxi has a foul smell, do you complain about it? Yes to the driver, yes in the app, or no, not at all. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Laura Bain, I will confess now with full vulnerability, I am a coward. I said nothing to the driver. I put nothing in the app, but I'm still thinking about it days later. Dave, your story has me thinking about the Seinfeld episode with the very smelly car. The valet. The event- yeah, and anyone who knows that will know what I'm talking about. But um, for me, I, I mean, it. De- so it depends on the smell. Uh, I'm very sensitive to colognes and air fresheners because I have chemical sensitivities. So those smells in particular bother me. And I do think about it when I'm taking a taxi or an Uber. I've never made a complaint Um 
I feel like if I was going to do that, I would probably do it directly to the driver just because I wouldn't want it to have an impact on their livelihood. But I've rolled down many a window mm, in less than mm. summary conditions. And I feel like that's sort of a type of silent complaint. Um, and in some situations, I've said to the person, you know, in the backseat with me, hey, can you roll down your window? Um, but I do feel, you know... When I do that, I worry about hurting the driver's feelings, but I'm just not willing to get a migraine over it. Yeah, it's, so I think I think you've hit the nail on the head here, Laura. It's, it's not just a question of being polite or hurting someone's feelings. In your case, you have a chemical sensitivity. This, uh, I'm going to be uh, leveling with you, was not a question of right. uh, cologne or air freshener. This was, um, uh, let's just uh, call it a little bit of like a uh, fecal uh, smell. And the one thing right. that the one thing that I thought about is if I was the stinky passenger or I did something to make that car smell bad, that driver can find me. That driver can say to the company, hey, this guy stunk up my car. He made this awful. Hit him with a $100 cleaning fee. So I do wonder about the obligation here the other way. Again, going with the confession that I am a coward and didn't do anything about this, I do still think about the, the reality of this isn't just a matter of inconvenience. For some people, this could actually create a negative health income uh, outcome based on uh, allergies, based on sensitivities, et cetera. So that's one of the reasons why I also wanted to bring this to the table today, Alex Smythe, not simply to sort of be like, hey, the driver was stinky and oh, woe is me. It's that there's like a little bit more to this. There's sort of a notion of paying it forward here because people are going to be getting in and out of that cab or Uber for the rest of the night. Well, and, and that's part of it as well, Dave. And like this, at the end of the day, this is someone who is providing a service. They, they want to have a service. They want to get the best uh, uh, kind of response. Well, you know, you, you have to put forth the better service. If, if the environment you're, you're offering up smells disgusting and the fact that you are still thinking about it days later, yeah, you should 100% complain. Uh, in that situation, I would have complained in the app and I, I, I would have listened, you know, smells awful. That way, at least, you know, the rating can be adjusted accordingly so people understand or at least temper their expectations. If it is like a ride-hailing app, you know, you'll see, oh, what is the rating? Oh, it's, you know, it's not a four, it's now one to a three. Okay, you kind of temper your expectations. And if it really is, if that's a concern, then you you cancel, you get another ride instead. So I, I think there's there's validity in complaining because otherwise you don't say anything. Well, then the next person is going to be in the exact same boat and they're probably going to think, oh, you know, why was I, is this the first time that uh, anyone has noticed this or is just a, a whole cycle of people not complaining? So yeah, and, uh, and, and, and nobody wants to create the confrontation. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. Nobody wants to be the Karen or the Ken. And Alex, I will no. say this. I still gave him five stars and a generous tip because that's no. like that's no. the kindness that Ottawa has beaten into me over the years. No, Dave. You're, I'm sorry. I would. I would not have done that at all. That, to me, it's like it's one thing. Fine, you do the stuff, but then you tip the guy too. Come on, now. You literally had to walk around the block multiple times. What are you doing? I, on, I, I, I am a coward. That that is the underlying principle and concept here. Cowardess. Uh, at Accessible Media on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc on Facebook. That's where you can vote on the poll. What do you do if your taxi? your Uber or your Lyft has a foul smell? Do you do nothing at all? Do you 
say yes, I complain to the driver, do you complain in the app, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Forty-five, forty-five. Coming up after the break, how can disability and artificial intelligence intersect in the workplace? Alex Smythe had a chance to explore this in an interview with Jesse Preston at the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disability Conference. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Ontario Disability Employment Network's annual Rethinking Disability Conference wrapped up last week. You heard lots of interviews with Alex Smythe. He had a chance to meet up with a few of the presenters right here from the beautiful confines of Studio 7 while they were down at the event centre itself in the GTA. And there's one more interview for Alex to share with you. Hello again, Alex. Hello again, Dave. So, Alex, what do you have on deck today? Yeah, so this is the final interview from the series that we did from the Odin Rethinking uh, Disability Conference. So this interview is with Jesse Preston, who is an employment specialist with Epilepsy Toronto. And so his uh, kind of topic and conversation at the conference was surrounding artificial in uh, intelligence and the employment sector, specifically how it relates to the disability experience and disability employment. All right, let's dive right into it. Alex's discussion with Jesse Preston from Epilepsy Toronto. Hi, Jesse. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not too bad. So, Jesse, your conversation focuses in on AI. Why is it important to have all these conversations now? Well, as technology continues to evolve and, and there are more and more capabilities, um, at least us at Epilepsy Toronto want to make sure that we keep up with all the changes and support our job seekers to the best of our ability. Also, there's you know other elements to that conversation that happen all the time, things like ethics, uh, usability, and how these things can um, better job seekers in general. Are, are the fears around AI job replacements overstated at all? Or is the fact that the disability community is concerned about it based on the fact that oftentimes the, the jobs that are being offered to the community are either entry level or considered low skill work? So I think one of the things to remember when it comes to technology, even 20 years ago, they said that uh, tellers were going to become obsolete because of bank machines. Uh, about 10 years ago, they said pharmacy techs were going to get replaced by these dispensary machines. And even last year, they talked about cashiers, you know, being replaced completely by self-scanners. Now we're seeing companies put back in cashiers because it, it doesn't quite serve the needs of the business. So even though the tech, there's great advances in technology, it's how companies use it and use it to their greatest advantage is where we should be keeping our particular eye at. 
So not necessarily because people say that it's going to eliminate jobs. It, it doesn't necessarily will occur in that fashion. What I'll also say is uh, even when it comes to college and university, there was a study put out by the University of Manitoba. They had a bunch of their nursing students use ChatGPT as part of one of their assignments. And even with the technology, they still needed to do a lot of work to actually get the assignment done. So it doesn't necessarily deliver as much as people hype it up. It certainly has a lot of power and it's a great tool for sure, but it's not gonna necessarily uh, eliminate jobs or eliminate low level jobs as they're, as they're saying. There might be greater opportunities for training, greater opportunities for use of the technology. And it's certainly gonna make some of those jobs easier, but it's not gonna eliminate them. And so for yourself, you, you work with Epilepsy Toronto. So how are you ensuring that folks with disabilities are, are being uh, kind of kept pace with AI and as this technology continues to move forward as a lightning pace, how are you ensuring that folks with disabilities are being able to stay connected with it and not get left behind? So one of the things that we did um, pretty much as the pandemic was unfolding, one of the things we we noted uh, from history is that right after pandemics, there's usually an explosion of innovation. So we knew that technology would start progressing at a lightning lightning fast pace after, after the pandemic. So one of the things that we started doing was be on the hunt for technology tutorials. Uh, anytime a job seeker said, hey, I'm looking for a job, we'll look through a job posting, we found technology, we'd immediately try to find tutorials for it. We'd try to find certifications for it. We would, uh, we joined uh, first work as part of their LinkedIn learning project. And we specifically made sure that job seekers would have things like credentials and stuff. If they didn't have the training, we would get the training for them immediately. What do you see as the relationship between AI and disability, especially in the context of employment going forward? So definitely, and I think when it comes to disability in general and its relationship with AI, I definitely see it as being very collaborative. AI is definitely going to help uh, people with disabilities in the sense that it's going to allow uh, more of the creative elements that are associated with disabilities to be used on a much more broader scale and, and in a scale much, much faster than previously before. I think with the right amount of training and certainly the creativity of persons with disabilities, I think that this could really move the needle in some areas. And, and do you foresee AI, as you're kind of elaborating on your point, how can like AI be used really as a, as a tool to uh, really assist folks with disabilities to, to really make it that they're more successful in, in the work that they are doing? So I'll give you uh, some some case examples um, of even that I've used. Um, uh, recently, we had the opportunity to potentially um, do a business plan for for a specific project that we were thinking of doing. And in previous years, we wouldn't have had the ability to even work on that. We probably would have let just the opportunity go because we didn't have time to really sort of work it out. But because we had AI, we were able to, uh, you know, say, uh, I need a business plan. Uh, this is what I want in it. This is what I don't want in it. Can you just create for me a general business plan? And it would it would create a template of a of a business plan with those particular items on it. 
and I'd go, okay, here's four or five changes, fire it off to my boss. You know, that was, that was pretty good. And I would have probably taken a lot longer to do that. So I definitely see it as helping the business side of it in terms of, of uh, other areas that that could help out with is say a person, you know, they know what they want to say, but they're not quite sure on how to say it well. ChatGPT can create different um, ways of saying it, different phrases, different ways of wording it. So you can get it to write at particular tones. So someone who might not be aware of how they're coming across, you know, they could use ChatGPT to create texts that have different tones and such. And that's just that's just some of the things that it can do on top of the obvious cases of, you know, writing letters and cover letters and doing research and creating templates. And so, uh, Jesse, where can folks go to learn more about the work that you and your team are doing? Well, definitely they can go to uh, our, our website, uh, epilepsytoronto.org, uh, and they can connect with our team that way. And um, definitely we've, we've got some other online resources, but yeah, we're, we're open to sharing. Perfect. Jesse, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. All right. Thank you. That's Jesse Preston, an employment specialist with Epilepsy Toronto. Just like Jesse said, if you want to learn more about the work they do, epilepsytoronto.org. Alex, Odin's conference has come and gone, but they're doing work all year round, including their podcast. You can't spell inclusion without a D. What's on deck for their podcast? Yeah, so as part of wrapping up uh, this whole event, they released a two-part uh, podcast series focusing on disability coverage in media or, or disability in media. So uh, the first one actually went live November 7th, and it, it featured a really in-depth conversation with someone we know very well, Dave, John Lepke. He even talked about uh, his work and role with uh, Now with Dave Brown Ooh. on that conversation. So getting a bit of a, a plug on that one. And the second part of that podcast, the second part in that series was that is actually being released today, and that's focused on disability representation in film, television, modeling and they, they feature a few different people uh, from uh, within that space so uh, there's someone who's on the CBC series push is involved with it uh, Natasha Jerko uh, there's Katie McMillan who is a talent agent who represents uh, disability uh, uh, connected actors and, and models and then also uh, George Al uh, Alvin Zeros, who is a wheelchair user and actor who is in Hudson and Rex, so people may may know uh, him from, from oh. that as well. So, so getting a, a variety of experiences within more the acting and modeling space uh, while still having that intersection with disability. Some familiar voices and some familiar topics, no doubt about that one. So the Odin's podcast, You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, is available on Podbean. And uh, you can learn more about the work that the Ontario Disability Employment Network does at odenetwork.com. That's odenetwork.com. Alex, thank you for this. Talk to you in a couple minutes. Sounds good, Dave. Coming up next, there has been a salmonella outbreak in raw pet food. Lawrence Gunther will provide more details on the story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Public Health Agency of Canada has reported a salmonella outbreak connected with raw pet food, specifically pet food that's come in contact with cattle, even more specifically, calves. The health agency says 40 cases have been confirmed in Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Manitoba, New Brunswick and PEI. There have been no human deaths, but some dogs and cattle have been infected and died. Lawrence Gunther has more details on the story. Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. Hey, Dave. So, Lawrence, how far back does this outbreak trace? 2020, and the reason it's just coming to light now is because they're, they've are they actually found proof that uh, it's traced to a dog food that contains raw uh, beef, right? So uh, they, they see the smoking gun and they figure, you know, time to issue a warning. Not only is it salmonella, Dave, but it's a form of salmonella that's not easily treatable with the standard antibiotics, right? So you have to get into the super antibiotics to, if you really get sick, to treat this. And of course, they'll only know if they actually diagnose it. So what are some of the symptoms or, or detections that someone should do in regards to a, in contact with salmonella? Yeah, so it can it can look like a flu, right? You can have a fever, diarrhea, upset stomach, um, nausea. So if that's persisting though, and and the uh, diarrhea is really starting to cause dehydration, you really need to get to the hospital, and you need to report that this could be related to coming in contact with a with serving the pet food, the raw meat pet food, or actually coming into contact with the dogs that that are eating this pet food. And that way they'll know what to look for, what to uh, test you for, and they'll be able to treat you accordingly. Lawrence, I don't have the details here in front of me, but but what what what's the brand associated with this? Because I think that's really important in this conversation. Yeah, I think there it's not just like a, some people, you know, last week or two weeks ago, we talked about, you know, getting local pet food, right? So a lot of people I know go to their butcher and they ask for the, uh, the cuttings, right? Anything that didn't make it into our our uh, brown wrap paper packages from the butcher, small bits of cuts of this and that, they grind it up, they freeze it, and they'll sell it to you. And then you can serve it to your animal raw. So there's that's common. But there's also, you know, uh, manufacturers pet food that are you selling uh, pet food that's raw meat and that's dog treats as well. So it's pet food and dog treats. And if you go to your pet food store, you'll find that stuff in the uh, in the dog uh in the fridge section or the freezer section of your pet food store. So that's the kind of thing you need to be uh, be careful of. What's the government recommending? You know, they say if you're if you've got children in your home or people that have a, a, a weakened immune system, aged people or people who are immune compromised, you might want to think twice about serving your your cat or dog uh, pet food with raw raw beef in it. You know, and if you are, you got to make sure you wash your hands after you serve the the animal. You have to touch the dog food, and then even the dog itself, right? The licking of the dog after it eats and it comes over and licks your hand, and you can get the salmonella on your hand or wherever the dog licks you. And even when you're picking up the feces from the dog, it can still be active in the feces itself. So you really have to practice really good hand washing. Um, um, you know, with soap and such. Yeah, dogs are uh, filthy creatures. They have a lot of personality, but they are definitely <laughs> filthy. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> what, what, what about the cattle side of this equation, Lawrence? What are the protocols that are in place? What should be kept in place here in regards to um, the, the the cow side of this? 
Yeah, so that's where it's coming from, right? We're feeding cattle. Cattle live in close confinement with each other. You know, they're stepping in each other's feces. So it spreads. It can spread amongst a cattle herd pretty quick. And it, it can be, you know, most cattle won't die from it. They can live with it, but it, it can get into the meat during the butchering process. But if you're visiting a farm, you definitely want to wash your hands after you touch the animals. And even if you don't touch the animals themselves, you know, while you want to wash your boots properly when you leave the farm and you want to wash, and if you touched anything, you just wash your hands really well. If you're going to some sort of pet fair or, or locals, you know, uh, fair uh, you know in your community and they're having calves there on exhibit for competition or cattle on competition even if you touch the uh, railings be, be careful to wash your hands afterwards Lawrence, that's the uh, pet food side of the equation. You've really been on this uh, pet food beat the last couple of weeks. Oh, uh, just, just the bubbly, but it's an important story, right? Like if you're talking yeah. about salmonella breaks, uh, you know, food that can cause any kind of digestive stress for an animal or a human, like, you know, it's a big deal. I, I, you don't have to look much further than the E. coli outbreak in the daycares in Calgary to know how just important food safety is. Oh, especially the stuff that, that says, uh, you know, that it's, it's, you can't treat it with standard antibiotics, right? Yeah, because yeah. the antibiotics are quite often in the animal's feed or they're being treated with antibiotics, so they become resistant to it. Lawrence, what's coming up on the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther on the mighty airwaves, airwaves, airwaves of AMI-audio? Yeah, man, we got, uh, we've got stories about uh, sea turtles. We've got stories about rhinoceroses. We've got stories about, you know, all sorts of creatures, how, uh, how they listen, how they navigate using their internal GPS and, uh, and, and animals endangered. We've got a whole bunch of great episodes coming up uh, over, the, over the December months that we're working on right now. The order in which they go up. We'll decide that with the producer, but uh, stay tuned. We've got some great content coming your way for sure. Uh, Lawrence, uh, are you saying there explicitly that you've got a special series coming up on or orientation and mobility for different kinds of wildlife, like how rhinos are getting around <laughs> with them big old horns? Well, you know, sea turtles, man, they've got they've got these little metal metal particles in their brain at birth that create a map that using our gravity, Earth's gravity, they can navigate thousands and thousands of kilometers. It's like got like built-in GPS, right? And and they also they depend on light when they're looking for the uh, the beach and to get on the beach and, and away from the beach. So yeah, they're using light. And, and the way whales and dolphins uh, communicate, you know, it's a frequency, Dave, a sound frequency that's beyond our hearing. So wow. this, this is wow. pretty cool stuff. Right? Super, super cool. Hey, Lawrence, yeah. thank you for this, sir. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Dave. That's Lawrence Gunther. He's the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. And you can follow Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther. That's at Lawrence Gunther on Twitter. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. Strength in base metals and tech helped Canada's main stock index log gains yesterday. Toronto's TSX index rose 70 points to 20,246. New York's Dow Jones average surged 203 points and the Nasdaq gained 159. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index slipped 33 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.88 cents U.S. Both the U.S. and Japan will have shortened trading weeks because of national holidays this week. 
week. Millions of people are expected to hit airports and highways in record numbers over the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. StatsCan is expected to release its latest reading on inflation this morning. The agency's consumer price index for October will be updated just hours ahead of the federal government's fall economic statement this afternoon. Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland is expected to include measures aimed at boosting the construction of housing across the country. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. You heard Karen mention inflation data in there. She put that report together a few hours ago, and since then, StatsCan has released their October inflation number, showing a slowing in the pace of inflation. Prices going up 3.1% year over year, 3.1% year over year price increase in October. That is a little bit down from September. And as I mentioned to you right off the top of the show, one of the big drivers in that was a decrease in the price of gasoline by over 7%. So gasoline slowing down the inflation number a little bit while rent and food continuing to drive prices up. So there you go. A little bit of an update there at the uh, tail end of Karen Rebo's Morning Business Minute. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather reports. Alex, it's sort of kind of maybe a good news weather story coming out of Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah, sort of, sort of, maybe, kind of. Uh, you know, it depends how you look at it. Short, short term, sure. Yeah, this is this is a good news story. Long range, okay, this is kind of uh, concerning. So we're we're focusing on my own stopping ground of Edmonton, Alberta. Normally at this time of year, it would be blanketed with snow, and that snow would stay until late spring. However, there is a chance that the city goes without in any single snowflake for the entire month of November. No snow at all. This would truly be unprecedented. In fact, it's never happened before in the history of it being documented. And for some context of what Edmonton normally receives in November, on average, it's 17.3 centimeters of snow during the month. So, so far they have zero and we're November 21st, Dave. It's usually also the daily highs are uh, kind of below freezing or well below freezing at this point, but they're still, you know, quite quite warm, quite comfortable. And this is all due to a, a warm Pacific air system that's kind of lingered within the area. So it's been keeping moisture and colder weather to the north and south at bay. And as a result, They've been uh, keeping their, their streets and, and roads nice and, and dry from any snow that they may have. And looking forward to that uh, long range forecast, it's predicted to linger in the area until early December. So this may wow. very well be a snowless November in in Edmonton. And to me, that would be a huge shock because I remember being there by December 30, uh, October 31st, Halloween, the snow was on the ground and it was there to stay. Yeah, I'm staying with my framing that this is probably a pretty good news story. But like you said, perspective matters. If somebody yeah. uh, in the Edmonton area is really into skiing or some kind of winter activity, snowmobiling, maybe they want that to come out sooner than later. But I kind of feel like the everyman, the every person of Edmonton, Alberta is greeting this with a little bit of joy because there will be plenty of snow between December and, say, uh, May the 1st. Absolutely, Dave. That's that's a well put. The snow will come. The cold weather will come. So it's just delaying it a little bit. We'll be okay. <laughs>
<laughs> well, keep the boots and uh, <laughs> keep the boots away for at least a few more days there in Edmonton. Thank you for this, Alex. Coming up after the break. International Day of Persons with Disabilities is a few weeks away. How does Canada stack up when it comes to disability rights? Rabia Khadr weighs in with her thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. December 3rd is the International Day for Persons with Disabilities. December 10th is the 75th anniversary of the passage of the UN, United, United Nations, you can say this, Dave, you can do it, United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. How does Canada rate with respect to the quality of life for people with disabilities and protecting human rights in general? This is a question that Rabia Khadar has been considering. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. Rabia, thank you so much for making time to be with the show again today. Thanks for having me again, Dave. Rabia, we'll sort of jump into some individual strands and strains in a second here, but overall, how would you rate the quality of life for people with disabilities in Canada in 2023? Well, Dave, we've come a long way since our, you know, times when we had our eugenic strategy and strategy of sterilization and we locked people away. We've come a long, long way today. As you mentioned, we're marking the 75th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights and, you know, it's uh, International Day of People with Disabilities coming up. We've made some significant legislative strides, including the Accessible Canada Act in 2019. And this year, the, uh, the, the legislation, the act to uh, implement the Canada Disability Benefit. This mm. is huge. This can be systems change. However, the quality of life of people with disabilities isn't up to par as it is for able-bodied Canadians. Pre-pandemic, people with disabilities were struggling to get and keep jobs, to adequately access transportation, housing, income supports. During the pandemic, life got even worse for people with disabilities, and yet it still steadily keeps going down that slippery slope. Mm. Disabled people in this country are not enjoying the same quality of life, are not thriving like able-bodied Canadians. You know what I think about too, Rabia, is a lot of inconsistency in what the disability experience may be, whether that's province to province, city to city, coast to coast. There's a lot of inconsistency in maybe the experience someone's going to have. And there's also just the reality of different lived experiences depending on the disability and depending on someone's life situation. And that's where the Canada Disability Benefit to me strikes me as sort of one of those linchpins. You, you mentioned that, that that's one of the big developments going on right now. It's certainly taking its time, working its way through the halls of parliament right now and through what will be uh, a fairly complex regulatory phase. But what's your broader observation about the Canada Disability Benefit and what prospect that might hold, especially for Canadians with disabilities who are living in poverty? Or I would even extend that out to working class Canadians with disabilities. Well, 
every person with a disability who's not earning enough to meet the poverty line to thrive, uh, whether it's through income sources or earned income, they're just not getting enough to get by, this top-up benefit will indeed change their lived experience because it will give them enough money to meet at least some of their basic needs. Now, the problem in this right now, Dave, is that even when the finance minister was asked this question last week, she provided a standard answer of, you know, that, that sort of fiscal restraint, fiscal conservativeness, dare I use the term, right? And, and said that, you know, we can't do everything. We have to, we have to be cautious of what we spend. Like that's the message she's sending. And people with disabilities just cannot hear that anymore because every time it comes to us asking for something, you know, it's, it, we're asking too much. Mm. And that's what people with disabilities are grasping with today. Like this money, this top up benefit will change their lives. And yet the halls of power, bureaucracy, parliament are taking their sweet time at bringing the bill into force and creating the regulations to actually get the money to the people who need it most. Mm. You know, the bill hasn't even come into force. That's a technicality. It's an order in council that needs to happen. Governor in council something or other, you know, some documents needs to be signed by somebody mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that the regulations process can move on to the next stage and, and we can have the, the benefit actually implemented. Yeah, Rabia, one of the encouraging things was at least the understanding of the problem. But now when you're talking about this timeline that for like, let's let's be optimistic. Let's be optimistic for the sake of being optimism on a Tuesday morning. Really, at best, you're talking about money hitting people's pockets, maybe in late 2024. For goodness sakes, I hope uh, something is put in place by the time an election happens in 2025. But I do think one of the big issues here is the stopgap gap in the middle, right? That if the problem's been identified, how long can you ask people living in poverty to wait for a top up to, you know, afford rent, food, etc.? They just can't wait, Dave. That's the message we're trying to send is they yeah. just cannot wait. Like right now, because the bill has uh, the the legislation hasn't come into force through this um through this technical process, what we're talking about is money not reaching people until maybe summer 2025 Dave. Yeah. So it keeps getting pushed out and out and out. I, I hate to be, you know, the rain on the parade. I don't want to be negative. I am the most positive person. You know, fine. Like we can do this, but we can only do this if every one of us shouts out loud, it's time to end disability poverty, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. we really need to be heard by the system and by the prime minister, you know, PM Trudeau made a promise three years ago. He needs to keep it mm -hmm. before there's an election. And, and that's the big thing. And that's the elephant that hangs over all of it. But like I said, let, let's not dwell too much in the pessimism, but you're absolutely right to address the reality of the situation. And I'm right there on board with you about the reality of the situation, because there are still some hurdles to go through to, uh, to get this passed. Rabia, let's continue the continuity of the economic side of the equation. You and I spoke last time about entrepreneurship and the value or the value or the possibility of that being a piece of the disability employment puzzle. 
role. Well, this is something that you find yourself talking about a lot. And last week, you had a chance to talk to CEOs of a couple prominent Canadian companies about the possibilities and prospects of more jobs for people with disabilities. What came out of those conversations? What was your takeaway from some of those meetings? Well, you know, I, I attended a symposium last week held by a major Canadian corporation uh, looking at, you know, just I issues around food and food security. And what I was really, really pleased to hear was its president and CEO talking about this concept of, you know, capitalism 2.0, like, you know, we have gone to this extreme mode of capitalism where we're leaving a lot of people behind and we recognize that and corporate Canada has to take responsibility to support community need to help communities thrive and just, you know, kind of kind of come to this place where we also invest in social good to, to lift people out of precarious situations by ensuring that they have access to food that's healthy and affordable and, and accessible and have access to, you know, affordable housing and accessible housing and have access to like, you know, quality transportation. Like we need to help people thrive. Mm. And thrive doesn't mean like they live the life of luxury. Thrive means that they have the basics they need for their well-being. Rabia, switching to another topic that's an important one, and unfortunately it pops up over and over and over again, and that's accommodation and accessibility issues while traveling. Uh, just yep. a couple notable ones here in the last few weeks. There was a gentleman from British Columbia who uses a wheelchair who had to drag himself off a plane because there was no wheelchair assistance for him on the ground in Las Vegas. That was an Air Canada issue. Air Canada has acknowledged the problem, but uh, sometimes acknowledging the problem is not enough. There was also a situation of uh, damaged or lost uh, accessibility and mobility aids that happened to the uh, Chief Accessibility Officer of Canada on a flight, which I think is kind of jarring and kind of shows you how pressing the issue is. Where do you think the issue of accommodation, accessibility, and inclusion in the travel space is stacking up in the broader human rights and disability conversation in the country? Again, you know, our, our like, oh, I hate to use this term, Dave, but this is all I can think of. We're just cheap. Yeah. <laughs> We're just yeah. cheap. Our, our travel um, services have really taken aback when it comes to, you know, air travel, um, right down to, you know, no meals and snacks. Like, we're just bloody cheap. And that impact is being felt when it comes to accessibility that you know we're negligent um where there's no continuity of of training i believe in order to educate people on how essential assistive devices are for disabled people we constantly hear horror and horror stories of wheelchairs being damaged lost left behind and yes this to happen to to stephanie Cadu, our chief accessibility officer is really really ironic but at least she has, you know, that that image, that profile in, in the system, in government, in the country uh, that, you know, her, this happening to her has to be flagged and taken more seriously and, and raises the issue to a level where there will be results.
Mm. I, I think what I found most jarring about the Las Vegas story of the gentleman who had to pull himself off the plane, beyond just how demeaning it is, like beyond how terrible it is, mm -hmm. It's the idea that the airline said, oh, well, we hire a third-party service at the Las Vegas airport to do that for us, and nobody was available. And that really struck me as sort of the shirking of responsibility of saying, you are a major airline that reported a billion dollars in profits last quarter. You need to have people on the ground. And, and to an even broader degree, and I want to be careful here because flight attendants have yeah, one of yeah. the hardest jobs on the planet, but I think there has to be some kind of training done for, for flight attendants in that scenario, in that situation, to at least be able to step in and offer some kind of stopgap or sensitivity. I absolutely hear you. Uh, where's our humanity would be my question, right? Mm. Like, as a human being, how can I stand there and watch somebody crawl off an airplane? I'm telling you, as a blind woman, I would have said, here, let me help you. Try to, you know, let's, let's lift you up. Let's do something. We're going to get you off of here with some accessibility and dignity. Like, honestly, my heart breaks for that person that had to endure that kind of dehumanizing experience. Yeah, that's the exact word, dehumanizing, like completely dehumanization of a person with a disability. Okay, Rabia, let's zoom out here on a, on a concluding thought. If there are obviously a bunch of different issues that impact the disability community broadly across the country, if you had to prioritize just one, I know it's really hard to do, but if you had to prioritize just one, what would it be? I can't see disabled people on the streets asking for money. I can't see them, like, like and this, I'm blind, okay? I can't hear about them being on the street, Dave. I just... I just can't live with myself when I have food and shelter and family and community and, and, and a job. I, I just can't, you know, I, I can't sleep at night yeah. knowing that, that, you know, my brothers and sisters with disabilities are on the streets, don't have food, are going hungry, are cold, you know, are, are enduring these conditions that I don't expect to happen in my Canada. So we need to change something, Dave. We each one of us needs to change something. We need to raise our voices, our hands, our you know whatever we can lift or or or, or you know enunciate or whatever kind of noise we can make. We need to get people in power to recognize that this ain't good enough in our society. People with disabilities have the right to live with dignity. That's what matters to me most. I think that's so well said. If I was to put a very fine point on it, Rabia, and I think anyone who watches or listens to the show every day would uh, be unsurprised by my answer, housing. Housing, 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 housing. Whether that's cities, provinces, the federal government, the private sector, whomever it may be, one of the key pivot points on all of this is housing. And I don't mean building a couple houses. I mean building, like, millions of houses. And that, to me, is sort of where the ball starts rolling. And then, of course, the, the, the other uh, subtext of that is accessible, affordable housing, not just affordable housing. But I, uh, I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to corner you on that one, but I bet you that'll come up between you and me over the course of the next uh, couple of conversations here over the next few months.
Oh, I completely agree with you, Dave. I agree on housing. And and if you're talking millions of homes, if we build millions of homes, they'll become affordable anyway. Yes, yes. It's all supply and demand, my friend. Oh, Rabia, it's nice to end this conversation on the same page. Have a lovely day. Thank you for this. Talk to you again in a few weeks. Thank you. That's Rabia Khadr. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty in Mississauga, Ontario. In one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report. But first, Microsoft is showing off some new adaptive tech. Brian Clark has more in Tech Trends. I was born without fingers on my left hand, and that has caused me to use my right hand for double duty my entire life. And it's wearing out. Solomon Romney's part of the inclusive tech lab at Microsoft and helped create some new technology that could help. It's called the adaptive touch mode for touchpads. Essentially takes a large imprecise input, so non-finger input, aggregates the data in a way that it tracks a center of mass of whatever's contacting, and that allows you to navigate the touchpad without the precision of a fingertip. Opening up all sorts of options for something most of us take for granted. With this, I can mouse with the edge of my hand, with the ball of my thumb, with my wrist. The new technology first arriving in Microsoft Surface Laptop Studio 2. With Tech Trends, I'm Brian Clark, ABC News. Thank you very much, Brian. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. Laura Bain, you've got some news from the TV and streaming world, some hardware being handed out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So last night was the 2023 International Emmy Awards, highlighting the best in global television. So that took place in New York City. No surprise, Netflix and Amazon series dominated the nomination and awards, just kind of the changing nature of the types of things that we're watching. Mm -hmm. So the best drama went to Netflix's German language series, The Empress. Have to confess, I haven't checked that one out. And uh, Amazon's La Queda, which I hope I'm saying that correctly, went to uh, won the best miniseries award. Wow, um, so Netflix really has done a great job in investing in international series. If you think about like Squid yeah. Game, for example, out of a Korea a couple of years ago, there's a couple of German shows that I love on Netflix, uh, Barbarian, as well as How to Sell Drugs Online Fast. Like Netflix has done a really great job investing in their European and international developments. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm a fan of Netflix series because they tend to have uh, descriptive video or descriptive audio, which I, I always have on mm -hmm. when I'm watching something. Mm -hmm. so, um, on that theme, uh, British sitcom Dairy Girls, that one for best comedy. I know that's got a lot of Canadian fans. And I'll mention that Martin Freeman won for best actor for his role in The Responder. Also have not seen that show, but I wanted to highlight him because uh, some folks like me will know him as Bilbo Baggins from The Hobbit. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, last award that I'll mention, Buffy St. Marie Carry It On won for best arts programming. So that's an in-depth look at the singer's life and career. That one was a bit controversial because there were some calls for that nomination to be rescinded due to the recent controversy around her Indigenous ancestry claims, but it did go ahead and the documentary won in that category. So Dave, this was, as I mentioned, the International Emmys, but I'm going to open it up. It can be American, <laughs> Canadian, International. What was your favorite TV show that you 
checked out this year. <laughs> Thank you for uh, not forcing me into the international conversation, although I'm glad I was able to shout out a couple of those old series, but I don't think either of them have dropped a uh, new season this year, so it wouldn't apply to your question. So thank you for allowing me to go domestic. I am staying with Netflix on this one, though. Uh, the new season of Human Resources dropped this summer. That's a, that's an animated show. It's a spinoff of the show Big Mouth that sort of explores mm. sexuality and, um, and maturity and puberty uh, through, like, a very adult lens. And I just think Human Resources is a very clever, clever show. It's crass and it's crude, but it also has a heart to it that I do believe is cored a little bit in inclusive notions and inclusive ideas. I just think it's really funny and it's really sweet and it's really weird. It's basically my favorite kind of television show. What about you, Laura? Yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to have to add that one to my list. Well, I hadn't planned on my picks being international, but they are. I was thinking back, well, what did I watch this year? So I'm going to mention two shows really quickly. The fourth and final season of the British dramedy Sex Education. Oh, people that love was, that show, yeah. That was great. And this season in particular delved a lot into accessibility and issues experienced by students with disabilities it was it was fantastic, um, and I also binged watched the first two seasons of the British teen dramedy. There's a theme there, uh, <laughs> Heartstopper. Um, so that both of those shows are available on Netflix for streaming. Heartstopper uh, kind of delves into issues of queerness and gender identity, and uh, there is a third season coming, but I just it kind of gave me all the feels. So those oh. would be my my picks. Neither of them. Uh, from what I could tell, nominated for the International Emmys, but uh, winners in my in my heart. <laughs> That's okay. They, they win the Bainies. They win the Bainies yeah. here on uh, November the 21st. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. Thank you for running down a couple of these awards, and thank you for a little bit of curation and suggestion. Have a lovely day. Talk to you tomorrow. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. British Columbia and the city of Surrey continue to grapple over who should run the local police force. I'll have that story in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Don't forget, you have to spell plus P-L-U-S. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. If you don't want to look at my carbohydrate-fueled face, you can always catch the audio-only stream at amiplus.ca or download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. I will say when you look for the podcast on the platforms, you got to punch in quite a bit of the name before it auto-generates. You've got to get almost to now with D-A-V-E, and usually around there it pops up. If not, it's an Edmonton Oilers podcast that uh, gets in the way. So a little love to the guys out there in Edmonton tossing the old rubber biscuit around. It's Tuesday, November the 21st, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, applying for the disability tax credit 
Oof, it can be arduous. How could the Canada Revenue Agency improve the process? Journalist Rebecca Dingwell shares her experience and offers up some thoughts. And it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Karen McGee, Alicia Yardley, and Alex Smythe will compete for the crown. There's no actual crown. That's okay, though. The hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in British Columbia, the city of Surrey, B.C. is mounting another constitutional challenge regarding its police force. The city opposes the development of a local force. Mayor Brenda Locke wants the RCMP back in place. Locke feels the issue is about taxpayer money. I just want the residents of Surrey to have fair fair, um, taxation policies. We want to make sure that we're taking care of our residents, that we are not seeing the kind of increases. I fully understand the frustration with the public. I absolutely am frustrated myself. Provincial Solicitor General Mike Farnworth disagrees with the mayor. Once more, I think just an example of uh, delaying tactics by the mayor. Um, And I think all it does is cost uh, taxpayers uh, money and it is a waste of money and a waste of time. This is the second legal action Surrey has taken since the BC government said the city must continue a transition to a local force. Over to the prairies, Manitoba's government will deliver its throne speech today. Steve Lambert looks ahead. It is the first throne speech for the NDP government after winning last month's election. Premier Wab Canoe has already said one of his first bills will recognize Métis leader Louis Riel as the province's honorary first premier. Canoe also plans to temporarily suspend the provincial fuel tax by January 1st. The throne speech will likely reiterate other campaign promises too, such as easing the workload on nurses and opening neighborhood health clinics. Steve Lambert, the Canadian Press, Winnipeg. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, Nova Scotia's government is making more provincially owned land available for affordable housing. The province announced that it has extended agreements and entered agreements with developers for proposed affordable housing initiatives at a 2.5 hectare property in Coal Harbour, a 3.6 hectare property in Middle Sackville, and three hectares in Bridgewater. The province says developers must continue to work through the municipal planning process and projects are subject to local planning requirements. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes the sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, there is a whole lot happening at the Para Pan Am Games in Santiago, Chile. You've got an update on a whole bunch of different sports, starting with Canadian archery. Yeah, this is a really cool story, in my opinion. I, I was watching the bronze medal matchup with uh, Canada's Kyle Tremblay, and he secured a um, a... A Paralympic berth for 2024. He did not win the bronze medal. He finished fourth, but still secured uh, that position. And the game was shot for shot with him and his opponent. And I have to tell you, the way that they broke the tie, Dave, was a one shot uh, closest to the pin won the game. Wow. And so this was like a couple of inches uh, one way or the other. They were both sort of in that yellow uh, bullseye area, if you will, and it was 
crazy to watch. And I actually really enjoyed watching archery yesterday. There was uh, tons of different athletes who used different methods to uh, shoot the arrow. It was it was really cool. But wanted to shout out uh, Mr. Tremblay and his uh, securing of the Paris 2024 uh, spot. Obviously, you want to go home with hardware, but it is pretty cool to know that you get to go to Paris next summer and try again after a really good performance. Yeah, and I mean... Literally, when we're talking one way or the other, if that arrow was, you know, just ever so slightly closer, he, he would have had the bronze. So, uh, right you know, I think I think when I listened to his uh, post game, he, he's pretty satisfied. And he said, you know, goal number one was qualifying for Paris. And that's what I did. And beautiful, you know. Yeah. Beautiful. So. What about uh, the action on the field when it comes to cerebral palsy soccer? Uh, if we look at cerebral palsy soccer, they uh, played the uh, host country Chile yesterday. They they got out to a one uh, nil lead and then they surrendered two um, pretty quick goals. They have now lost uh, all of their games, which is going to make it pretty tough for them to uh, advance. But they need to... <laughs> generally yes, generally it would be <laughs> tough to advance when you're losing all your games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They they really needed to win that game against the host country uh chile to advance so uh they didn't do that and i think it's a bit of a disappointment if we're looking at uh, cp soccer and just not getting it done then there's your old stomping grounds in the bocce world oh i'm so proud of my of my bocce uh, team uh they they are playing really well they have uh, six athletes in total in all different categories uh, going for medals out of the eight athletes that are there uh, with them. Uh, it's been really impressive. Uh, I want to highlight uh, Lance Kreiderman, who had a one and one record after the round robin and really played well in his first game, but then had a, a troubling game against uh, Mexico in game number two, came off the court. And I can really appreciate the fact that he said, listen, I knew I was qualified because of my point differential. I learned something uh, from the game against the gentleman from Mexico. And those are the right pieces of language, Dave, that you want to use and you want to, you know, say that you learned something. I think if you take away something from, you know, each game that you play, it can build you moving forward. The other group that I want to highlight is the BC4s, Marco uh, Despaltero from Montreal, Quebec, and Allison Levine. Uh, both of those individuals have, made it to the semifinal. Marco played a game this morning against uh, Brazil. His name is Santos, and he is the uh, winner from the 2015 Para Pan Am Games, and Marco won the 2019 Para Pan Am Games. This was a really good game, and Marco was able to come out on top there as well. So lots of, lots of great things happening in the world of bocce. Nice, nice. Okay, over to the world of wheelchair rugby. What's going on with the teams uh, competing uh, for Canada there? So if we look at wheelchair rugby, uh, Canada played two games yesterday. They played the host country Chile and won that game 60 to 27. This is a real dominant, dominant team led by Zach Medell, who we've talked about in the past, really getting lots of tries and really getting whatever he seems to want in every game that he plays. Uh, and then they went on to play Columbia yesterday as well, and they won 61-45. They are undefeated as we sit here right now, so they are poised to potentially get into that gold medal game and hopefully qualify for Paris 2024. And then, of course, uh, it's not a pair of Pan Am games unless you talk about wheelchair basketball. What's the latest off the court? <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Canada men's team played Argentina last night. The final score was uh, 59-49. Uh, uh, no, sorry, 56-49, pardon me. Uh, th- this was a closer score than what I just told you. They were going back and forth within the last uh, quarter. It was one point up one point down this was the kind of game that canada men's really needed they had been rolling through the tournament rolling through everybody they had played and to me argentina was really a formidable opponent and said hey don't forget about us you you might you might be thinking you're gonna play the united states but let's not forget about argentina and i think argentina proved to themselves as well hey we we can we can play with these big dogs that are canada and the u.s and i would throw in argentina now from uh, that perspective. Nice. Um, the Canadian women uh, have played a game this morning against Colombia. They won 71-25. They are undefeated as well. They will get on to the winner of their pool. And so that means that they will play the uh, best second in the semifinals. So we'll see what that looks like when the day is done. But they really haven't faced a lot of adversity this tournament so i'm kind of concerned as they roll through this event and we'll see what happens but i think some adversity can kind of help you move forward in the tournament so hopefully they can keep things going but a little adversity can sometimes help you out a little bit all right brock in conclusion what does the hardware look like what's the medal counts we have uh seven bronze medals we have one uh silver medal and we have three gold medals. Same same uh, count I gave you yesterday. There's only there was only one medal early yesterday morning for a total of eleven. Right on, Brock. Thank you for this. Thank you. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. The Parapan Am Games continue in Santiago, Chile, and Brock is all over it. Coming up next, applying for the disability tax credit can be arduous. So. How could the Canada Revenue Agency improve the process? Journalist Rebecca Dingwell will share her experience and offer up some thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's talk about one of my greatest fears, not porcupines, but bureaucracy. Registering for the disability tax credit can be arduous. Dozens of pages and forms and medical checks. It's a draining process. Journalist Rebecca Dingwell just completed this process and wanted to share her experience. Rebecca is based in the Halifax Regional Municipality. Hello, Rebecca. Nice to chat with you this morning. Hi, nice to see you. Uh, Laura, uh, not Laura, Rebecca, I, um, I'm genuinely curious here because this was done for me when I was a young, wee little baby. So I don't know a lot about the process in real terms, but I've heard that it can be quite difficult. What was the process like to apply for the DTC? Oh gosh, where to begin? Um, so for me, I 
first I, I learned about the DTC when I got diagnosed uh, as autistic a couple of years back and the psychologist who diagnosed me said, hey, I suspect you're eligible for this. And I'd never heard of it. So um, it, it was obviously, this is a couple of years later. So I, I waited a little bit before I started that process because I found it really intimidating and I knew it was going to be arduous. Um, so uh, after some research and, and reflection, I decided to go and um, hire a consultant to help me fill out the forms. That ended up being uh, kind of useless in the end, not because of the consultant themselves, they were great, um, but because when I went to my GP to sign off, on the forums, she ended up watering down my application completely. So I kind of spent money on a consultant sort of for nothing, which mm, I mm. regret. Um, but um, I mean, in, in the end, I did recently find out that I was approved, which kind of shocked me, not because I don't think I'm, I should be eligible. I absolutely do. But I do feel like because my GP watered down my application so much, uh, I, I was concerned that her interpretation of my disability would not uh, be considered eligible. Rebecca, if you're comfortable going into that a little bit deeper, what was some of the back and forth there when it came time to do the medical checks? And maybe what the broader implications are when health professionals might end up being one of the hurdles or roadblocks in the DTC process? For sure. So uh, I guess in general, I think there is a lack of nuance. So, for example, um, one of the topics that came up was uh, impulse control and my level of impulse control. And I had written in the form that I had some issues with impulse control, not, uh, not extreme issues, but some. And my GP said to me, well, you know, I, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if it's fair to say that you have issues with impulse control because um, the way she put it, she said, well, I have people sometimes who, uh, you know, have, have such extreme issues that they're trying to attack me in my office. So to her, that was, if you're, if you don't have that level of problems with impulse control, then it's almost like you, you can't even say that you have impulse control issues. So she was very much thinking about the extreme uh the extreme levels or the very like the very very debilitating levels another thing that came up with uh something that i think i've talked about on the show some months ago was uh you know the reasons i don't drive i have my license i choose not to drive it's too overwhelming for me have not done it in years so i'm trying to explain this to her that although physically i can drive um I, I don't, and for me to drive in the city of Halifax now would would probably be a disaster. So mm. um, I, I would consider that, you know, uh, a lack of ability, I would say. But for her, because I do have my license and physically I am quote unquote able to drive, then uh, that was not relevant. Mm. The way she put it was that, well, I find it difficult 
to to drive and that's how she wrote it on the form which does not encompass all the issues that <laughs> come come between me and and driving a vehicle so there was just a real a real lack of nuance and her um her interpretation of things was that you know sometimes i have i have a difficult time yeah and that was that kind of felt like it was it which strikes me as maybe one of the bigger conversations around, I would call it sort of disability literacy or disability knowledge, disability understanding, that sometimes the perception of disability is only perceived through the lens of severity, right? That like for someone like myself who's legally blind, it's pretty easy for me to go into a doctor's office and fail an eye test. That said, a doctor would say, well, he's not totally blind, so what does that mean? And that goes back to what you said about that lack of nuance in the way that the medical world more broadly, but the but the world, but even the world more generally, doesn't quite understand what disability truly means. Absolutely. And I think for me, like I consider myself pretty lucky in that generally speaking, I, I have a pretty good GP. I've heard a lot of horror stories, but even so, um, that that sort of gap in understanding was very obvious to me. And, you know, even when I, when I go into her office, one of the things that is staring me in the face is a poster about that that's been there for, for years now, um, signs your child might be at risk for autism. Uh, and, and every time, every time I go there, I look at it and I contemplate saying something and I haven't yet, but it just kind of shows that those dated views are, um, you know, still very ingrained yeah. in a lot of general practitioners. I, that said, I do understand where there needs to be some kind of uh, medical, some kind of medical checkoff or checklist that exists in this disability tax credit process. I, I, I'm empathetic to maybe the government position on this because we know people will cheat. And oftentimes, it's it's sort of one of the oldest tales of the disability experience of saying, okay, what is the balance between having to do vetting and proof versus making the person with a disability feel welcome to ask for accommodation? Where do you think? there could be some middle ground here or how could that side of this vetting process medical vetting uh be improved totally as it, as it stands right now i don't think there is a lot of risk for people quote unquote cheating because um the the process is so arduous and also because i don't think a lot of people disabled or otherwise have Heard of the disability tax credit mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i wouldn't I, I, and some people conflate it with being um you know what they say being on disability when it's not it's a separate thing um so i i think just uh, there is just a real lack of knowledge and i i don't know i don't know exactly how they might improve this but um i feel like it, it's almost the way, same way that uh you know here in nova scotia there are a few things like uh, heating rebates and that kind of thing. And there are press releases that go out yearly saying, hey, you might be eligible for this and maybe you should apply for it. And I feel like even just a few little things like that, um, you know, going out from, from the CRA, um, 
that they, you know, they have no problem sending us notices about audits and stuff. Maybe we could just get a little something in our, in our inbox annually, just being like, Hey, have you considered? And, um, you know, if it's not relevant to you, you can just click away. And if it is, you can say, okay, maybe I'd like to learn, learn more about this. I think there's just a real lack of education in general around it Mm -hmm. now. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think you're right, but I also think before we talk about, you know, balancing and filtering out the riffraff, um, that needs to be, uh, that needs to be a problem to begin with. Yes, with this particular yes. thing, with this particular thing, I don't know that it is. And, and and the thing is, the the disability tax credit becomes a huge domino to accessing other disability services like the Registered Disability Savings Plan, which is a really, really good program. But once again, there's a low uptake there because there's a low uptake on the DTC and the dominoes fall and fall and fall. Like you said, awareness is a huge part of this and just hammering home the awareness of if you have a disability, you are eligible for this and you are eligible for that purely as an informational concept rather than simply sort of a soft concept. Uh, Rebecca, I do want to ask you one more question here, though, because we focused a bit on the medical side and the medical uh, vetting side. What about the paperwork side of the process? You said you hired a consultant. In the end, you felt like maybe that was a little bit a little bit wasteful uh, in the end. <laughs> but what did you think about that side of the process, the bureaucracy, the paperwork, or what's known as my greatest fear? Yeah, and I total I'm totally with you on that fear because it is scary um to go through these forms and I think again, you know, I I talked about lack of nuance on that medical side. I think it's this it's similar with the forms. The questions are very broad and you get these little teeny tiny boxes to fill out. So, I think the main struggle for me and why I ended up hiring a consultant was because I wasn't 100% sure what was relevant. I mm. didn't know how much cuz you want to you you know you want to put in enough detail that whoever on the other side is reading it understands the impact of the disability and at the same time you don't want to be too long-winded. You want to be concise. So and I don't know I don't know how they could go about making this clearer exactly or making it um more uh, accessible, shall we say? Hmm? <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't know. I would love to see, like, I know they couldn't do this, like, for real examples because that's a privacy issue. But if they could, if they could provide some examples of, like, potential answers you could give, what is, what is, would be considered uh, appropriate to include in this box? Hmm. Um, and that might be, again, something that they don't do because they're worried about people copying or faking. But again, I think at where we are at this point uh, with this particular issue, I, I don't think we have to worry about that because the process is uh, nowhere near accessible enough for, for us to even be um, going into that train of thought. Um, so part of this obviously is especially when you're filling out something related to your taxes and your finances you especially don't want to get that wrong right you don't want to uh, start sending in stuff to the government's inofficial documentation that's a bit messy I, I'm going to ask you a couple of technical follow-ups here and like don't need to go super elaboratory here but were you able to do this online or was everything still pen and paper 
Yeah, I I was able to do it online, but like I said, my my doctor ended up refilling it out, so she did she did pen and paper, and then um, it was scanned. So okay. I was able to submit it online. You can still do it by mail, but um, okay. I did it online. And and uh, how long would you say the overall process of filling out the forms took? Um, it took me a couple of probably I did it over the course of a couple of months, I think partially because I was going through that a little bit of back and forth with the consulting firm. So for me, I, I sort of stretched it over, over several weeks or a couple of months. If I actually sat down and did it all in one go, um, I don't know how long it would have taken me, but because of how my brain works, I decided to stretch it out. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of procrastination and a little bit of like uh, for your own uh, mental protection along the way. Hey, Rebecca, thank you for sharing the vulnerability of this process. Um, I appreciate the personal glimpse into something that I've had the privilege of not having to deal with, but I'm sure there will be some paperwork one day down the road that will uh, grab me by the Achilles heel as well. So all the best to you and talk to you in a couple weeks. Great, thanks. That's Rebecca Dingwell, a journalist based in Halifax. Coming up after the break, someone bought a real expensive sandwich at a major sandwich shop. Alex Smythe has the story and a question for the roundtable with myself and Ramya Amuthan. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, you want to bring a topic to the roundtable today all about tipping, a conversation that's never had in mass media ever, not once. And never before had on this round table day, but this is all tied to a story of a woman in Atlanta, Georgia, who may have accidentally bought the most expensive Subway sandwich ever. Chuck Severson tallies the bill. Vera Connor says she checks her credit card statements and noticed the charge. She lives in Metro Atlanta and says Subway told her she tipped thousands of dollars for her sandwich. She says she told them it's a mistake, but it hasn't been corrected. I've worked in retail before. I know how we tally up at the end of the night. And? I could have gone to Italy and got the sandwich. <laughs> Bank of America says they're trying to get Subway to correct the mistake. Chuck Severson, ABC News. Yeah, so obviously this is a, a huge mistake where it made her tip thousands of dollars because that's not a reasonable assumption with any time you go into a Subway sandwich shop. But, you know, I, I wanted to kind of discuss the, the kind of the culture of tipping, the, the observations that we've had around tipping. So I've, I've noticed it start to permeate more and more. But Ramya, how have you noticed kind of the, the evolution or, or the nature of tipping in your daily life? Well, as concrete examples, um, what used to be like 10, 15, 18% as the three options from lowest to highest as the default uh, for tipping is now what, 15, 18, 20? Like the, there's nowhere where you go where 10% is even an option. 15 is usually the lowest you can go now if you're not doing a custom tip. That's number one. Um, and number two is, and also, by the way, I feel like this happens in the blink of an eye. Like I'm not sure if this was a more gradual pro process 
process. But uh, all of a sudden, I was going out, and I'm like, where's the 10%? And then secondly, um, you're tipping everywhere. You're tipping at counters of fast food places, your Subway. The the fact that this story is about Subway sandwiches is kind Mm -hmm. of beyond. Um, And, uh, you know, food courts and all kinds of places where I didn't think and still don't think tipping should be an option period like the awkward uh, scenarios that i've ended up in where as a person with low vision i need extra assistance with the um terminal like with the payments and then uh, they're like and what would you like to tip and i'm like at uh at subway at pizza pizza like not nothing i don't want to tip <laughs> so yeah. um yeah you're you're really placed in these <laughs> really awkward positions and i'm just using my own personal accessibility experiences as examples but really tipping has gotten ridiculous and we uh, we do have conversations about the root causes and why it's becoming a problem why we should be talking more about it but nonetheless i think it's you know we're this has just gotten way too complicated and way too much of a given that we're supposed to be tipping in any and all scenarios now. When you can afford to and when you're able to, being generous, being financially generous is one of the greatest feelings that you'll ever have, especially sure. for a lot of people uh, in precarious economic times. If you have the opportunity to help working people and put a few more dollars in their pocket, you absolutely should. But yes, let's all be old men and yell at clouds it's gotten <laughs> totally out of hand and this news story alex uh based on this major subway uh, this major sandwich chain uh i've noticed this at the one down the road from the office here where every time mm-hmm. uh they're sliding the thing around being like a tip please <laughs> and it just does seem a little bit much in the fast food context i'm i'm someone who used to tip my subway people anyway but i used to pay with cash and i'd throw some change in the little bucket and a little cup in front of the cash and everybody felt good about it but now when it becomes Becomes more of a structural pursuit, that's when it leaves a little bit of the foul taste in someone's mouth. I'm not someone who's going to lose sleep at night trying to uh, be generous and help other people and help mm-hmm. working people who are working their tails off. Um, I know that kind of sounds like I'm virtue signaling and praising myself, but it's the <laughs> truth. Uh, it, I'm, I'm in a very lucky financial situation and I want to try to make sure I can pass that along and pay it forward when I can. But Alex, there's no doubt that tip creep is uh, getting pretty out of control, even in situations where you're doing self-service. You get to the self-service checkout station and it's asking you for a tip and it's like, wait a minute, hold on. I'm the one who just did all this work. Yeah. Well, and I, I also think, too, part of that, that mentality shift that you mentioned, you know, it's like, well, it's no longer a tip jar. If it was cash, you feel like, oh, it's a more direct transaction to the people there. When it's a credit card, when it's a debit card, you, it's all going into the system. So you don't know is it actually going back to the, mm. the employees working or is it just going funneling into the corporate structure and then, you know, the trickle down uh, that they see? But I've even noticed it when I was on my recent trip to Europe, Germany, almost every single restaurant we were in, because you always heard, well, you know, Europe, they, they don't really have that same tipping culture. But every single time it came time to the bill, they would uh, hand over the machine and say, okay, well, and here's the option to tip. You don't need to. But here is an option if you'd like to tip. So, and I noticed that on like at least 90% of the restaurants in Germany. When I was in Iceland, not once did that Mm, come up. mm. But almost every single spot in Germany. So you are starting to see it creep into other places that traditionally haven't experienced it in the past. And that's a bit concerning. 
here's where we all get to pat ourselves on the back. And this is always fun. I like it when we get to pat ourselves on the back and brag to the country from coast to coast to coast <laughs> on national TV and say, I am generous. Alex, what's the biggest tip you've ever given? Oh, uh, so it, it would be like a $50, $60 on, on, I think it was like a $200 bill or something like that. There was, the service was phenomenal. So, you know, you're, you're end up giving like a $25, 30 uh, uh, 25 to uh, 40% tip. I can't remember the exact number. I remember it was like above what I would normally tip of the 15 to 18%. I, I would went that, that amount. I uh, gave the owner at a bar that I attend uh, frequently uh, in Cabbage Town in the GTA $100 once on oh. a uh, $60 bill because it was around Christmas and I could, it was during the height of the Pando and they did a really great job keeping the place open and keeping the place clean during the course of the pandemic and she's the owner and the server and the bartender and the cook. She does everything. So around uh, Christmas that year, I slid a crisp hundo across the bar to her. Percentage-wise, I don't know if that's like percentage wise, that's by far the biggest tip I've ever given in the sense that it was more than 100% of the bill. But I've probably been to a couple nice restaurants where uh, where the where the actual monetary value was higher. But as a matter of percentage, it was probably a little bit lower. Ramya, you get last word on this. What was your most generous tip? I don't have a particular example, but let's just say the more I drink, the more generous I feel. And so if I'm being served alcohol and, you know, you've been a really decent enough server for me, maybe all you did was read the menu. And I'm like, oh my God, you're so sweet. Here's like a 25% tip. But I don't think I've ever tipped as generously as the two of you. My goodness. Well, I've you know. Barely any reason to pat myself on the back, apparently. When, when you hang out at the diviest bar on Parliament Street, you know, it's important to uh, curry favor with the uh, people okay. behind the bar. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. Ramya, you don't get to go away just yet. What's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Also, I now learned that we can say the pando. I didn't know that we were doing that. Thing, I don't know. So. I don't know if we can say that, but that's that's the parlance, the common parlance that I speak with. Okay. Uh, we have nutritionist Julia Carranch is joining us to talk about chili because we've been talking mm. about hearty foods for the winter. Are you a fan? Oh, I love chili. Good grant. Okay, great. Oh. Yes, uh, I know. It's delicious. And you can actually pack it with a lot of nutrients. Uh, also, students and staff at a local elementary school in Medicine Hat, um, Alberta, are getting the opportunity to learn about a variety of disabilities on November 30th. So this is an initiative that's going on. And Tony Frymark, our community reporter, is going to tell us more about that. And and we have Voices. Uh, Voices is a segment where we say, come on over, tell us how you feel about whatever it is, the subjects you want to talk about. Jacob Shemansky, a technical producer Ooh. at AMI-audio and co-host of AMI-audio Book Review, is going to join us today. Oh, Jacob, making an appearance on Kelly and Rumya. Yeah, Rumya, I love, love chili. I make my own chili, and I'll, I'll say this. I'll brag again. I'm, I'm patting myself on the back a lot in this segment. <laughs> I make a darn good chili, a darn, darn good chili. Yeah, like so it's super hearty. It's super spicy. It's fantastic. Do you have a meat of choice that you go to for chili? Uh, a little bit of a little bit of ground pork and a, pork and a little bit of ground beef. Nice. Yeah. I love the mix. Yeah, I got to do awesome. a little bit of a mix there for the flavor. I also add um, peppers in there, which not every uh, chili mm -hmm. connoisseur does. Wait, wait. Do you add cocoa powder in your chili? I have. I don't like it. Oh, maybe it was too much. But I'll All right, let's do a chili exchange. But I'll typically put a little bit of cumin in there. I love a little bit of cumin mm -hmm. in there. Uh, tons and tons and tons of spices. I, I make a hot chili. It's it, it's All it's right. it's it's quite spicy. And then I pour it over mac and cheese. And then I have indigestion for four days. <laughs> 
I was going to say that sounds delicious yeah. until the next <laughs> yeah. day. <laughs> Ramya, have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Talk to you tomorrow. That's Ramya and within the co-host of Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on the mighty airwaves of AMI. Coming up next, it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Alex Smythe stays on screen and Karen McGee and Alicia Yardley will also join the conversation to compete for the big win, the big W. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's wrap up the Tuesday show with a bit of competition. It's the weekly news quiz. All right, saying hello to the contestants on the show. Alex Smythe has been very present during the Tuesday edition of the show. Hello again, Alex. Hello again, Dave. And AMI content development specialist Karen McGee standing by in Morrisburg, Ontario. Hello, Karen. Good morning. And somewhere in the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, it's Alicia Yardley of AMI's Human Resources Department. Hello, Alicia. Hello. Fantastico. Got everybody lined up here. Let's jump in with the rules of the game. There are three rounds of questions with three questions per round. Each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing those options, you get two points. If you need to hear the options, you get one. If you get it wrong, we move on until the point is awarded. The order of contestants and questions were drawn up by producer Paul Daniel. So the order will be Alicia, Karen, and Alex. The first round is all about international news. Okay, Alicia, Javier Millet won a South American country's presidential election over the weekend. What country is it? Can I have the options, please? Is it Brazil, Argentina, or Bolivia? I'm going to say Bolivia. That is incorrect. Karen, a chance for a steal. Brazil or Argentina? Argentina, I believe. That is correct. Malay is a former TV personality and pundit. So uh, reality TV, a nice way into uh, politics these days, apparently. One point for Karen McGee. And Karen, you get the next question here, and it comes from the United States. Last week, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen challenged a witness, Senate Sean O'Brien, to a fistfight in the middle of a Senate hearing. What organization does Sean O'Brien represent? This would be a tactical error because it was the Teamsters. <laughs> yes, you definitely do not want to brawl with anybody from the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. So that's two points for Karen McGee. Can we give her the ding ding? Thank you very much. Apparently, uh, Mullins was upset about comments made about him in a tweet by O'Brien, who is the president of the Teamsters. Karen McGee off and running here in round number one. But there's an opportunity for Alex and Alicia to get back in the mix here with question number three. Alex, what former British Prime Minister was appointed Foreign Secretary as part of a major cabinet shakeup by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak? Yeah, that was uh, David Cameron, I believe. Ooh, Alex comes out firing for two points as well. Uh, there we go. Boom. 
There we go. So Alex in the mix after round number one. Karen McGee sitting at three. Alex with two. Alicia with the goose egg. Don't worry, everybody, because the second round is all about sports. Karen, Major League Baseball owners approved the move by the Oakland Athletics last week. What city have they been approved to move to? I believe it's Vegas. That is correct. The A's lease at their current location expires after the 2024 season. Here's the thing, though. The alleged stadium that's going to be built in Vegas uh, will not be able to open until 2027. So, hey, maybe, maybe Montreal can have a team for a couple of years in between. They, 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 they would love that. Oh, wow. Karen McGee with another two-pointer there. So really opening up that lead. Uh, five to Alex's two and Alicia's zero. Okay, Alex, here we go. An opportunity with question number two of round number two. Australia won a record-extending sixth men's cricket World Cup on Sunday. They defeated the host nation. What country was Australia playing against? I'll need the option state. Was it South Africa, India, or Pakistan? I'm going to go with India. That is correct. One point for Alex. India had won all 10 of their matches before the final, but Australia picked up the upset. So now, Karen at three, a five, Alex at three, Alicia at zero. Alicia, you need this question. You need I question do. number three of round number two. The Montreal Alouettes won the Grey Cup on Sunday. Alouettes' Cody Fajardo was named the game's most valuable player. What position does Fajardo play? Uh, I'm going to need the options, please. Is it wide receiver, running back, or quarterback? Um, I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say running back. That is incorrect. Karen, was it wide receiver or quarterback? Wow, I didn't watch the game, and I haven't followed the CFL oh, this year, but I'm going to say guess quarterback. That is correct. That is the right answer. It was a fabulous, fabulous game. Uh, the only CFL game I watched in its entirety all year. So uh, it was super fun. I also was in Montreal. So there was a vibe. There was a vibe on Sunday night. Fajardo finished with 290 yards of passing and three touchdown passes. Mm -hmm. Fantastic game, super fun, and uh, that's another point for Karen McGee. So by my count, that has Karen McGee at six uh, and Alex at three and Alicia still sitting on the goose egg going into round number three. All of these questions are related to general news stories. Alex, what U.S. political figure was photographed walking barefoot on a public airplane flight last week? Oh, oh man. Um, I remember this story. Ah, geez. Um, I'll need the options, Dave. Unfortunately, it's escaping. Was it George Santos, Robert F. Kennedy, or Vivek Ramaswamy? It was uh, Robert F. Kennedy. That is right. One point for Alex Smythe. Kennedy later said he was on his way to the bathroom. I don't see how that's an excuse. Like, don't go barefoot not in better. an airplane bathroom. Not like, not better at all. Okay, I've already confused myself because I'm too busy editorializing. I believe that puts Karen at six, Alex at four, and Alicia, unfortunately, still sitting on the goose egg. But, Alicia, here's a question from the world of entertainment. Hopefully, you can reel this one in to get off the snide. There is yes. a spinoff of the TV drama series NCIS, and this one is set internationally what international city is the ncis spinoff set in uh can i get the options is it dubai tokyo or sydney hmm 
gonna say Tokyo. That is incorrect. Karen, a chance for a steal. Dubai or Sydney? It's Sydney. Another point for Karen McGee. The other NCIS franchises are set in Hawaii, New Orleans, and Los Angeles. And uh, Karen McGee, you've pretty much got this thing on lock. But let's uh, let's finish out the game just for the heck of it over here. NFL sideline reporter Carissa Thompson was in hot water over the weekend for comments she made on a podcast. She admitted to have fabricated sideline sideline quotes from players and coaches. A few days later, Thompson clarified her comments saying she would never make up a sideline report. What network does Thompson work for? Wow, I watch a lot of football and they all kind of blend together because I watch on TSN. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna guess Fox. That is correct. And two points for Karen McGee. Uh, there actually would have been two answers that I would have accepted there. Uh, both Fox and Amazon. Carissa Thompson does the Amazon sideline hey. reporting as well. Well, sideline, I should put my fingers up here. Uh, fing, uh, uh, air quotes. Uh, sideline reporting, allegedly. <laughs> uh, those comments, by the way, drew a lot of widespread criticism from other uh, sideline reporters, including a lot of women in sports. But uh, to this moment, Thompson, still employed by Fox as well as by Amazon. So you can find her uh, doing the Friday afternoon game between the Miami Dolphins and the New York Jets. What a lovely couple of days of football are lined up here uh, later this week. And unsurprisingly, I'm not working on Friday. So, uh, yeah, good luck with that, everyone. Uh, that's it. That's it. That's all. Karen McGee with a dominant, dominant victory. I, the, the number went so high, I can't even remember the score. With that, the winner is... <laughs> McGee, that might have been uh, your strongest performance ever on a news quiz. I think my highest was 11, but that's all I have to say. Okay, the fact, the important fact check-in from Karen McGee on that one. Karen, thank you for this. Alex, thank you for playing along. Alicia, I'm very sorry that you couldn't get off the goose egg. I promise you next week we'll, 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 we'll get better questions for you. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm running on about an hour of sleep, so oh, I oh think dear. that's probably why. Oh, dear. But okay. I, it's all good. Win then, some, you lose some. Then I will not brag about how many good nights of sleep I had in a row while I was on vacation. That's it. That's all the time there is for the show today until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.